Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Godzilla vs. Kong, and I know I said previously that our friends Daniel Lima and Elijah Howard would be joining us for this one, but there could only be one Apex Predator, so it's just Elijah today. Elijah, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well, thanks. Um, oh, man. God, God, Godzilla vs. Kong is uh, is the uh, newest movie in the... I don't, is it called? Is it actually called the MonsterVerse, or do people just derisively call it that? I don't know. No, that's, um, yeah, it's Legendary's MonsterVerse. Oh, okay, cool. So it's the newest film after, after we had uh, Kong Skull Island in 2017, and then we had Godzilla King of the Monsters in 2019, which Elijah also joined us for. At this point in time, in the timeline, of the MonsterVerse, Kong is now being monitored on Monarch in a dome on Skull Island, though not really sure how long that's been going on for since Kong Skull Island took place in like the 70s, right? It's, it's being supervised by uh, Rebecca Hall's Eileen Andrews, who just really funny watching her in this movie. We'll talk about that. Uh, her, adopted da- her adoptive daughter is named Gia and is kind of the last remaining native of the island. She can communicate with Kong through sign language and she is deaf. Uh, back in my hometown of Pensacola, Florida, that is extremely accurately portrayed in this movie, uh, Godzilla suddenly attacks the Apex Cybernetics facility. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry plays a lower-level Apex employee named Bernie, who has a monster podcast. So again, a character just like me in my in my hometown. Uh, and he talks about all the stuff that's going on there. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown's Madison, who we met in the previous movie, is also conveniently living in Pensacola now with uh, her dad, Kyle Chandler, who literally phones in his performance, I think we can say. Uh, and uh, good for him, though. And always, always like seeing him. And uh, so she's there. She teams up with her classmate, Josh, played by Julian Dennison. And they meet up with Bernie, Brian Tyree Henney's character, do their own investigation of Apex and Godzilla, which, I mean, we'll talk about where that goes. It's pretty hilarious. And uh, Apex CEO uh, Walter Simmons, played by Damian Bashir, recruits Alexander Skarsgård's Nathan Lind, who was just hanging out in my other hometown of Philadelphia, to help figure out a way into the hollow core Earth, which might power these Titan creatures and help them get to the bottom of Godzilla's attacks because they just don't understand why he's just out of nowhere attacking the Apex facility. They ultimately decide that they need Kong to help guide them there, and they are that sets our Titans on a collision course. Uh, Elijah, we talked, when we talked about Godzilla King of the Monsters two years ago, I think we both came down pretty similar on that movie in that we were inevitably going to compare it a little bit to 2014's Godzilla, which I, we bo- I think we both thought kind of handled the human being part of the story better than Godzilla King of the Monsters, but Godzilla King of the Monsters just had some cooler fights. How do you think, I guess first of all, I mean, you can say whether or not you like Godzilla versus Kong, but I'm curious... Because I think that those are just the two things. Those are just the things you look at with these movies. You know, do you get to see cool fights? But like, can is the human stuff not like distracting from the rest of the movie and just how you know thin the characters can be and just how silly the characters can be and all that stuff? Because uh, I I did think like Godzilla King of the Monsters really fell short in that department, especially with the Vera Farmiga character who didn't really seem to have any discernible motivation other than to have just have these a bunch of monsters kill everyone. And I think that's like the push pull of these movies where it's like. You know, can you get everything you want to see out on out of these kind of monster movies where they fight each other, but also, you know, at least not be totally bothered by these human beings? How do you think this movie struck that balance, and did it ultimately work for you for what you want to get out of these movies? Yeah, I think that the problem with with Godzilla King of Monsters, uh, you know, as far as the as far as the human element went, 
was that there was no sense of humor. The human element in that movie was 100% serious. And the result is that when you have the inevitably thin human element of any Godzilla film, really, I think when you have the human element of any Godzilla film, really, and you try to play it off as super serious, you get what, what ended up happening with King of Monsters, which is that it's just laughable. Uh, I think Godzilla 2014 works in that regard because it's sincere more than it is serious. And, and of course, you know, the fact that Godzilla doesn't really even become a character until a third of the way through the movie, if not, if not even really more. This movie, Godzilla vs. Kong, I think succeeds much better than King of Monsters did because it recognizes that all of the human element in any story like this is just a joke. Like, there's maybe one serious plot line, which is uh, Rebecca Hall's character's, you know, relationship with her daughter. And that's really it. Everybody else in this movie that is a human person is there for laughs. And it works. It just works. Like, it's not, you know, riotously funny, but it's a good distraction from, you know, it's a good pace break from the you know, constant onslaught of, 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 in my opinion, some of the best fights in the series so far. Um, well, I don't think I, 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 I find it interesting you put it that way. Cause I think you probably had just have more reference points for these movies. I, I did not do a good job as I should have in the last two years of going back and like boning up on my Godzilla knowledge and watching old movies and stuff. And I know you have, I know you've seen a lot of the older Godzilla movies. Is humor a big part of those in general? Cause that's something I did not realize. It would make me actually more intrigued to go back and watch some of them. It is so historically so there's two um well really now there's three eras of japanese godzilla films mm-hmm. and, and you know discounting the most recent there was the, the era that started with shin gojira in like 2014 or whenever that one came out 2016 right um not not including that one but prior to that there was two eras of godzilla films there was the uh, the showa era and the, I think it's the Hisei era. If you just give me one second, I can actually find the find the the, na- the exact names. Yeah, it's it's Showa and Heisei. The, so the Showa and Heisei eras of Godzilla, and the Heisei era started in the 80s and ran through the 90s, and it was it was a lot more serious. Uh, you know, kind of building off of that period's interest in more gritty violent action films you know the the action films of the 80s but the previous generation the showa era um ran from the fifth from the original film in 1954 through 1975 and those were serious they they had you know an honesty to them in terms of their thematic material but by and large especially films after like the first and second godzilla film kind of got a little silly i mean there's there was son of godzilla which has a like a baby godzilla in it that is designed quite charismatically like it's a really an adorable godzilla like and that and that's kind of representative of the rest of the showa era was sort of these um these godzilla films where the action is there to you know to to wow and to awe the audience 
Um, and the human element is there to just give you a breather kind of in between those scenes. I, I, do, I do find it funny, though, that you kind of talked about the humor and the human elements in these movies because I particularly do, I, I kind of agree. And I think this movie obviously like got the human elements better than King of the Monsters. Though one thing I kind of hinted at in my little intro there was that it had this uh, it had the Brian Tyree Henry character who I think is just I mean, he's an incredible actor. Millie Bobby Brown, who's obviously a very talented actress, though I can't really say I've like seen anything she's done outside of Stranger Things, and she doesn't really talk a ton in Stranger Things. She's, uh, you know, she's just there to, and so I think it's kind of probably fun for her to play like a, a, a kid that's being out as outspoken as she is here. And uh, Julian Dennison is playing a different kind of character, I'd say, from you know what he is in the Deadpool or Hunt for the Wilder People movies. So I, I enjoy watching all these people. They are doing their own adventure in this movie that like we spend a lot of time on. And then it ultimately builds towards them uh, spilling a drink to assist in the final fight. It's just kind of funny. Like they cross the world, they go into the core of the earth and out one, uh, uh, go in into the core of Pensacola, Florida, and out to the out, out the other end on Hong Kong, and infiltrate these facilities, all to spill a drink. And I don't know. I don't know if that's the best use of all of your screen time to have it build towards that. If it's the best use of the plot, but at the same time. I was kind of fine with it because all of those people were fun, you know? And I guess that's just, uh, I, I, I guess that the movie just did a good job of at least, like, letting those actors do their thing, even if they weren't really all that integral to the story. I, I, did you think it was interesting to see, like, I mean, not that every blockbuster has, like, the best plotting, but that, like, so much of this massive blockbuster was kind of spent on three people that were, obvi- like, very, very much on the outskirts of this entire thing up until, like, one small assist at the end. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, by and large, their characters are just there to serve as comedic relief, which I think, you know, Brian Tyree Henry and Julian Dennison do really well uh, in this movie. I also think they're there to kind of guide the viewer to the the Mechagodzilla reveal, which um, is not really a, a big shocker for anybody who you know watched the trailers or read online about. Oh, so he, so, so he was he was in the trailer. He's there is a brief flash of him that people were like oh what's that like is, we don't... He, is that a monster that's in any other godzilla story of the past oh yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. godzilla's okay. appeared in like three or four films in the okay. past if, of course not in this capacity you know you well you know usually mecha godzilla is i guess yeah built as some some sort of like defense against the titans in in all of the other godzilla films although they don't call them titans or whatever uh you know defense against the kaiju but you know i don't know if you count if you caught that there was a uh there's a bit of a snafu with, um, uh, I think, like six or seven months ago, they there's uh, some convention for like toys specifically. It's kind of like a, you know, like an E3 for toys or a Comic-Con for like toy culture. And they just straight up unveiled the, the Mechagodzilla toy at the event when Mechagodzilla hadn't been in any of the trailers or the promo or marketing material so far. And everybody was just kind of like, what? And then they're sort of just like, all right, whatever. We'll, you know, roll with it. Okay. <laughs> we admitted that Becca Godzilla's in the movie. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't much of a huge surprise for anybody who's, you know, plugged into the internet. But it, that's, I think, why those characters were largely there. It's yeah, just they kinda to s- kind of. They see what Apex is up to. And so we kind of get a little, I guess we get a better idea of their long game in theory or something like that and what's going on. And, that these guys aren't all they're cracked up to be because of this investigation they're on, I suppose. Right. And I, I, I think we'll kind of get around to talking about some of the character performances, but I know 
you know, we wanted to talk about with like Demian Bashir's character, Walter Simmons, who's the, you know, the, the, the CEO of Apex, who's kind of, you know, the, the mastermind behind all of this nefariousness going on with Mechagodzilla and with uh, you know, Isaac Gonzalez's character, his, his daughter, uh, you know, trying to steal energy materials from the hollow earth. I think what this movie did better than, you know, than, than Godzilla King of Monsters was, was the story beats with the villain. I think one of King of Monsters' biggest problems was that we have the reveal that, you know, that Vera Farmiga is kind of not all that she's, you know, not all that she portrays herself to be. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's the rest of the movie. And it just goes on and on after she gives her, like, Prezi presentation about her evil plan. Mm-hmm. And that movie kind of sucked because of that. You know, it's just, like, weighing in the air. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so, so stupid. But I didn't even understand what her evil plan was as I was watching it. And right. At least, exactly. I, and, and that was, like, my biggest problem with that. It's like, you kind of just want mass death, but I don't know what your end is. Like, you have a husband and a daughter. Like, shouldn't you just, like, want to have, like, a nice life with your family? I don't get what you're up to. I mean, this guy, I guess he fits the mold a little bit more of, like, an evil, like, corporate megalord, whatever. Uh, and I still am not exactly sure what his end goal was. Like, obviously, we're, we're not – we're spoiling this movie now because, like, the fact is it's widely available on streaming services. People can watch it, and I'd rather just go here with it. So um, if you're, for some reason, still listening and haven't watched it on HBO Max, go do that and then come listen to us talk. But I, I – you know – He's obviously has this thing in the works, and we're led to believe Godzilla knows about that, and that's why he attacks the Pensacola facility. Uh, and but but at the same time, it's like okay, so maybe he was going to use it to take out Godzilla and allow him to have a, a greater level of power than any of the other Apex Predators could, uh, because especially because at that point Kong was just still hanging out in that dome. He didn't have to worry about Kong doing anything until they took him out for their own purposes, I guess. But. Uh, Though I guess that becomes part of their plan anyway, so I don't know. But I don't ultimately know where he was going with it. And we, and, but at the same time, as you're saying, it didn't really bother me that like I don't, I didn't totally know his motivations. But I guess you're saying they just did a smarter job of laying that part of the story out, I suppose, than they did in King of the Monsters. Yeah, and in King of the Monsters, I think they just spill the they spill the milk too early. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, they delay it, and we get a we get an idea of like, oh, okay, so they're building some kind of monster to you know maybe fight Godzilla. But then the best one of the f- funniest parts of this movie to me is when Walter Simmons is having his big, you know, villain speech. He gets killed right in the middle of it, which is you know that that's what it's almost. It was almost like a big middle finger to King of Monsters for its, you know, villain reveal True. scene True, that yeah. went so boringly. This one, you know, Walter Simmons, you know, Demian Bashir's character gets like three sentences into his, you know, whole spiel about the Titan problem. And, and he turns um, around and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, yeah, it gives us the, the classic PG-13 oh shit where he gets, uh, you know, demolished halfway through saying the second word. Um and I just thought that was a great scene. I just thought, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what that's how these movies should go. Yeah, and you see him up until that point with um the 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 guy that works for him. His um his name is Ren Serizawa, and I guess he's the son of a late monarch scientist. Uh, and I'm in. He's kind of working with him to control Mechazilla through Mechazilla through his um like through this other kind of like, you know, contraption you put on your head, do whatever, uh, or Mecha Godzilla, excuse me. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, like, and I guess that is kind of the point, like when I was saying, when you were saying how, you know, uh, those three characters doing their own investigation kind of leads them to see that. And you see a little bit of what they're doing, but 
for a large part up until that point in the movie, those guys are still like the ball is kind of hidden on what they're up to, but you kind of get the feeling there's something more to it, but you don't really know what. And I've, and then right when you're kind of getting to it is when he dies. And I think that in and of itself is just like a, it's just, it's just like a different way to have those kind of presence in your movie where it's like, he's not just like a evil, crazy evil dude. That's like lording over the whole thing. He's there. And then he's there for in a little bit of a bigger role. And then we just get back to the monsters and it's like, okay, like, yeah, I mean, they did put, they disposed of him fast and he didn't play as big a role as you think, but like he served the purpose and he's gone. And instead of like, almost like serving too big of a purpose, you know, like King of the Monsters, like, like the, the climax of the movie rests on us, like having to get invested in the beer of Harmia character who just comes across as too ridiculous. And here it's like, you know, they get, they, they get rid of him and they get rid of Aiza Gonzalez in a pretty hilarious way before you even like really have to think too hard about what they're doing there. And I think, I, I just think right. it's smart about that. Well, yeah, I think it comes down to what this movie perhaps understands best is that, you know, or what what King of Monsters didn't understand is that in a Godzilla movie, we do not care about the why. We only care about the what, because these are not movies of particular depth, um, which is fine. Uh, and, And so, you know, whereas King of Monsters thought it would gain extra points by pontificating about climate change and the human virus and whatever you know this movie was just like ah we don't care why they're doing what they're doing he's building a giant robot monster (laughs) she's trying to steal you know uh sacred energy from the from the hollow earth like no nobody cares why they're doing it they're just gonna get trounced and you know and then we're gonna get some monsters fighting and i thought that was you know i thought that was fine I thought that was, and it, you know, I don't know. Uh, okay, so pause for a second here. Did, yeah. Do you know if we already, if in the recording that you got, that yeah. we, did we already talk about kind of like the Hollow Earth and you know? No, no. I think we'll go back to that. Goofy yeah, that no, was. no. Okay, I, I think so. we got out to that. Yeah, but I, sorry, you can, you can go start your sentence back up though. Yeah, I just thought you know, the, there's a lot of elements of this movie that build towards a more fantastical uh godzilla film um and that was that's one element of it i think is recognizing that in movies like this we don't really need to know why we really only care about the what um well so yeah and i i i agree and before we get we'll talk more about the end of the movie in a minute but i guess uh when when you're when you're saying fantastical elements i think part of what you're getting at is that is that hollow core sequence and uh what did you ultimately think of that? Cause I, I honestly didn't know what to expect when they're like tunneling through it. And I was pretty impressed with the, with the world they built. And while yes, a lot of it is like big, dumb fun. I think it's pretty impressive that the movie can have big, dumb fun, but also give you a sequence as moving as Kong going through the throne room. Right. Exactly. And I think it's, it, it is accepting the departure from this net, like need to be grounded in something real and to feel real, uh, which if we had, if there was one fault to be seen of the 2014 Godzilla film, it might be that, that it was so, you know, specifically realistic. And it's been, you know, Kong Skull Island kind of hinted at some more of the fantastical elements. And then uh, King of King of Monsters has the one scene where they go to the underwater Atlantis place and then blow it up which sidebar that could probably be a great description of that movie. And, <laughs> um, but 
you know, this movie actually embraced it, actually embraced that more Jules Verne-esque kind of fantastical sci-fi. And I think it works to its advantage because when you're not trying with all your might to fight against, you know, your own creative process, you're going to end up being able to produce scenes like Kong, uh, you know, going back to the throne room. And I think now might be as good a time as any to talk about the, the character performances of the monsters, which I thought have been the best in the entire series so far. Um, I thought, for, you know, this movie is called Godzilla versus Kong, and it's about these two characters, you know, and it's not it's not about the humans. It's about these two characters, these two monsters. And this is the movie that has, of all of them so far, has done them the best, has actually humanized them, quote unquote, in a way. Um, I know that Terry Notary did the performance for uh, for Kong. Uh, I don't know who did the performance for Godzilla, but um you know, Terry Notary is a fantastic mocap actor. He's He did the previous Kong films. He also, I think, did a little bit for, um, uh, I think he, he had a couple of performances in the Planet of the Apes movies from a couple years back. So, you know, I, I, I think this movie just, it knew its head was in the right place um, as far as what it needed to develop and, and what it could kind of spend a little bit less time on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, it, I think it's heads also in the right place and just, again, not forgetting that people are there for, for the fun, as you kind of mentioned a little bit at the beginning, you know, I think some of the past movies did have some like fun stuff and maybe it, it kind of got away from that a little bit in, in the last movie. And it, you know, I, I think, you know, that hollow core scene, when they get in there and they're just kind of first cruising in, it's like, wow, this is beautiful. And then all of a sudden it jumps at you with an action scene that's like, oh, this is kind of scary for a second. And then Kong rips off that one creature's head and just starts drinking from it. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's silly and we can have a laugh. And then and then it goes on to the third room after that and it's like, oh, we're now back to something moving. And then you have him like literally like crunch up Aiza Gonzalez's ship with his hand. So, I mean, I think... I don't know. I just find it very impressive that this movie like had its fun moments like that, but at the same time, you know, gave us some pretty touching stuff. And and you and you mentioned those performances, and yeah, like I I, I just didn't. I don't know. I, I think I came in worried about the human elements of it because I was just expecting to not get much from the animals, and that's part of what bothered me so much about Godzilla versus or about King of the Monsters is that I like those fights. But, you know, I don't think as much was done with the personalities of the animals and of, of the creatures in that movie. So I was more focusing in on the humans and just kind of bothered by them. And here, like, I I think I was just so pleasantly surprised because I was like, oh, wow, like, they actually really did something with these people here, you know? And it's it, 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 it's it's cool that it, you know, it I thought it, you know, I don't know, just hit a lot of the marks. So Yeah, and the human performances, I think we've talked about how – to, to some degree, a lot of them are comedic relief. You know, they're there to be kind of, uh, you know, to be a little bit on the, on the sillier side. Um, I think that's, you know, that's true of uh, Alexander Skarsgård's character, who I think a lot of people are going to look at this movie and be like, oh, you know, he's the he's the, the, the manly hero dude. But he's really more of a goof, like more of a kind of a quack and kind of a lunatic. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I think... He plays that character well. 
And I thought Rebecca Hall did a great job as the straight man. It's pretty well, much the only person in the movie who has to play a serious role. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that because I, th- I feel like a lot of people were just kind of like, oh, she didn't even know what kind of movie she's in. It's like, no, like, it's fine to have a straight man in this movie. She has a lot, like, of responsibility, like, even agreeing to, like, have Kong leave this safe bubble and do something. That's, like, kind of putting your whole career in the line. I feel like she should be, like, taking things more seriously than every than every other character. And she's having to look out for her 8-year-old daughter that's inexplicably, like, on this trip. So, uh, it's fine if someone's the straight woman in here. I think she does a good job of being the straight woman, like you said. Yeah, totally. And and I think the film balances really well her both her her seriousness with the emotional scenes where she has to be serious in those scenes and you know it balances her seriousness in scenes where she's like the only sane person mm-hmm. where you know alexander skarsgård's saying something dumb and and Aza gonzalez's character is saying something dumb and then in the middle of it is just rebecca hall who's just kind of like rolling her eyes and it's like that's that that is a role like you know whether or not you like it like that is a like that is a character to be developed, and I thought um, I thought she did a really good job with it's it. A, I think she's a great actress. It's so. also it's also a nice moment when like uh, Alexander Sarsgaard accidentally like gives the wrong sign language thing and basically like uh, calls himself a coward or something, and she gets to get a nice little smirk if, smirk off at her daughter. And I thought in that moment like it it showed her getting to show a lighter side of her personality. But I also liked that it kind of like made the Alexander Sarsgaard character a little more endearing. I mean, at that point, I think it's not as apparent just how big a villain the Damien Bashir character is going to be. So part of me thought that maybe he was going to turn into more of a villain than he ended up being. So it was kind of an upending my expectations of what that character was going to be, too, by seeing, wow, he is kind of, he's not just like a, he's not only like a kooky conspiracy guy. He's probably a kooky conspiracy guy that's just like a little more aloof and not necessarily possibly evil in the way I was expecting him to be. So I, I didn't really have a problem with like any of the big character beats in this movie at all, even if, you know... Some of them ha- could have had more to do. Some of them didn't have. Some of them, you know, maybe didn't have like the fullest of arcs. But like as we already talked about, it's kind of funny how those villains' arcs get cut off and it works. So, yeah, right, absolutely. And I think you know, in general, can we just talk for a minute? I, one thing that this movie has, the other ones have had too, that I think is just hilarious, is like random, really good actors showing up for like thirty seconds. Like, yeah, in this movie we get Lance Reddick appearing it like literally in one scene. So 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 you do you like, while some of that might it might have been him getting cut. How your what are your feelings about that in general in movies when like someone really good shows up for really short? Is it you get a kick out of it more than get more so than you're getting distracted by it in a bad way? I think it depends. You know, it depends on the scene and the context cuz it can, you know, it can rip you out of it, you know, out of a scene, it can make you, you know, it can take you out of it. I don't think in this case it really did. Uh, you know, it's just sort of, you know, he's just sort of there to, you know, to say like to be serious and say like two lines, and that's fine. And it's, you know, it was the same way when Joe Morton shows up in King of Monsters, to you know, King of the Monsters to to again say like three lines and then that's it. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of these guys, it's just the easiest paycheck you'll make in a, in a couple of days. And I think that's uh you know, if that's, yeah. if that's what it is, and that's what it is. I, I joked at the beginning because there's, like, this title card in there that, like, or this uh, or these words just flash on the screen um, where it's like, oh, this is the the Monarch base in Pensacola, Florida, or whatever, or Mar- Monarch uh, monarch uh, temporary something or another. And it, this does not look like Pensacola. I saw it in a Pensacola theater. I can't believe no one else laughed in the theater because it, it looked like Hawaii to me. I didn't know where it filmed when I was watching it. 
but I, I checked since we've been on here, and they filmed in like Hawaii and Australia. So I don't know if they filmed the interiors like that in Hawaii or Australia, but good for Lance Reddick if they did, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you can just, you know, yeah. If, <laughs> imagine if somebody came to you and was just like, hey, you're an actor, you know, you're relatively famous. You want to come fly out to some exotic country for a couple of days to sit in an air conditioned trailer and sit at the beach and drink margaritas and then say like three lines. I mean, I think that's how these movies end up, you know, and this is true of, of previous Godzilla movies too. Not just, you know, these last couple, I think this goes, this trend goes back a long ways, even within the Japanese films, sort of venerable actors sort of appearing just for the hell of it. Let me, let me ask you about this, this, this final, the final 30 minutes of the movie, I guess, because it's this, you know, it's, it's one Godzilla versus Kong fight, then it's another Godzilla versus Kong fight. You get to see Godzilla charge up the, uh, charge up the axe that Kong has been using, and, uh, you have the, uh, the whole drink spill thing, which opens the window for them to take out Mecha Godzilla. You know, how do you think that scene stacked up to, like, the other stuff in this franchise? Because, I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of the issues, even with the final scene in 2014's Godzilla, was just it was so dark. And I'm like, I kind of respect that. It. It's like it's easy to see this, and we're just getting a lot of fighting, and it's kind of just because when you think about it, like the 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 fights on the ship was actually kind of uh, was actually the fights on the naval ships were their own kind of unique setting for it, and I thought that was cool too. You could see it all very well. But aside from that one, all the other action in the movie up until the last half hour is actually pretty short. Uh, and then we got like, all of a sudden we just get this like long fight sequences between the two of them and Mecha Godzilla joins in on the fun. I, I want to ask you one, just how do you think they, how, how do you think they pulled that off? Were you, were you impressed? Cause you know, we talk about it being big, dumb fun. And I even went back and watched it again before we started. And I found myself just smiling when, uh, he rips off Mecha Godzilla's head and just like stomps on it and yells. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is already like, this is getting me again on the second time through. Did it have that same uh, fun effect, uh, fun, joyous effect on you? Totally, totally. And it might be the most, the most fun I've had with the Godzilla film in a long time, really? you know, in that regard. Because, you know, I, I tend to think of it this way. You know, we complain as an audience we complain when climactic fights between humans are overly obscured for no particular reason whether it's something like you know a born supremacy kind of film where it's just cut to hell and there's you know it's super choppy and and shaky and you can't see what's going on or whether it's something like the long night from game of thrones where it's just pitch black and you can't see anything you know we want our fights to be legible and a lot of the time I found in recent years, we, for some reason, do not apply that same standard to non-human fights, whether it's aliens or monsters or anything like that. We suddenly don't really care if it's if you can see and understand what's going on. And I, I'm I hate that. I'm a big fan of legibility in, uh, you know, in fight scenes. And I don't think that there's any reason why we shouldn't apply those same standards to a monster fight scene. And I thought this movie understood that better than any of the previous Godzilla films, uh, you know, in this in this generation have, which is that, you know, these are characters. And we talked about it before. They, these Their performances, their actual, you know, monster character performances are some of the best we've had in a long time. Um, and I think that they understood that and that's why they did the fight scenes the way they did that's why adam wingard directed those fight scenes the way that he did was because he knew that he had actual characters on his hands and he knew that by showing you the fight 
you're not detracting from the mysticism. You're not, you know, you're not giving viewers too much. You're allowing them to get engrossed. And I think that's why it makes, you know, a shot like, you know, where Godzilla has Kong pinned and is like scratching his chest. You know, if we could only see a third of that shot, whether because it's obscured by smoke or because it's from a stupid camera angle or because it's cut to hell in editing, I don't think that that shot is as impactful as it is when we get the head on full on 10 seconds, you know, uncut of Godzilla tearing at King Kong's chest like that. That becomes a much more impactful scene. And I think that that's that kind of speaks to a larger trend, which is just increasing legibility and recognizing that these are characters and that audiences care about what happens to them. Yeah, I guess I, I, I had thought about just how much fun I had watching the fights and also how, you know, we already talked about, like, they did a good job of this with the characterization of these monsters, but I actually hadn't probably thought about how much that goes hand in hand and how, yes, obviously how it's shot makes a big deal and it's, it seems simple, but, like, it helps when you can see the whole monster. And, you know, there are too many movies where they had they had the capability of doing that that just don't, and so it's good that they did, but even the fact that, like, but again, just the fact that, like, we have a little bit more of a relationship and understanding of who these creatures are, it makes the it makes those fights more effective. Let me ask you a, a different, maybe uh, separate question that still deals with this fight. And this is, could just be me because I'm in the middle of an MCU rewatch. I'm just kind of trying to do that because I want to enjoy the binge mode podcasts on it and in advance of us finally getting another MCU movie because at the point at which Black Widow comes out, it'll have been like two years since we saw an MCU, a new MCU movie. So I kind of just figured I would go back and do it all. I think it might just become with the territory for people who are more invested in Godzilla movies uh, and have seen more of them. They're like, look, a city's probably just going to get destroyed. Uh, but man, like they killed so much of Hong Kong. In the, in the uh, even up even before Mechagodzilla comes on the scene, there that I'm like thinking. First of all, you know, Gia tells uh, Kong, "Be careful when he goes back to the fight after reviving him." And it's like, yo, a little late at this point for that. Uh, they've he's they've already destroyed half of half of this city. But two, it's like I can't help it. I had the thought, how happy am I supposed to feel at the end of this when I can like kind of just see how many people are probably dying because every three seconds one of these guys like just takes out another skyscraper I mean is that I, I know that's probably just a me problem but you know I think one thing that the uh I think one thing that the so much of the and they I think they probably did the same thing in King of the Monsters it killed I think they uh, they rampaged through a lot of Boston but a lot of that just takes place in like empty Fenway Park also so I think maybe that wasn't on my mind as much when we saw that movie because <laughs> It, it, yeah, I just... it's, it's fine up until the point where Godzilla goes like sub nuclear in King of Monsters and literally like unleashes an atomic bomb blast. Oh, like, I, oh okay, I guess I guess okay. I guess I forgot about that part of it. Then I was yeah. just thinking more of the Fenway Park. But the fact is, they take out like half of Hong Kong. I don't but know, if Josh, they... Josh. It's okay because Lance Reddick showed up for thirty seconds and said we're evacuating the city. Oh, I forgot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I, I guess I should have. I should have realized they could have evacuated all of those uh, skyscrapers as soon as Lance Reddick gave the word. That's a good point. I mean, I guess like I'm, I, I don't know what I'm. I'm not. I'm not necessarily trying to make a point. It's just I did think about that. And again, just like having the villain with the weird aims didn't really bother me that much. It didn't ruin the movie for me, but it was a thought I had where it's like, wow, there's a lot of people dying. How happy can I actually feel at the end of this? Like we averted a real crisis because this is already probably like the the biggest, like the biggest devastation uh, to any major metropolis ever. So I'm just saying it's something that was on my mind in the way they shot it and how many buildings they toppled. Of course. And that's, you know, if we're talking about because there there is definitely two sides to the Godzilla coin, and I, I've already already previously mentioned you know the two eras of Godzilla and how 
the the Heisei era is a lot more you know serious mm-hmm. than the Showa era, but the Showa era began with a quite quite a serious film, and, and it's you know, I think we talked about this when we talked about King of King of the Monsters, but there's definitely an interesting dichotomy where the original Godzilla film was released in Japan in 1954, and then when it came to America, it was recut hmm. and distributed as Godzilla King of Monsters. It came out in 1956, and it was, thematically speaking, a completely different film, even though it was literally just a couple of recut, you know, elements and, uh, you know, scenes with a white dude added to make American audiences feel a little bit more comfortable with the film. Um, what was removed, by and large, was the human element of, or the hu- the the human element of the destruction of Godzilla. Uh, in particular, there's a very famous scene of a woman like cradling her children as like the, like the flaming rubble of a building collapses around her. That's, it's just like a step, like a slow push in, you know, with her children asking if everything's going to be okay. And it is very, at the, you know, for Japan at the time in 1954, it was very ev- evocative of, uh, you know, nuclear warfare and, you know, the, the very immediate past for Japan. Uh, and of course, when they brought that film to America, they completely sanitized that because, you know, hmm. Americans don't want to be reminded of the fact that we bombed another country. But, right. um, you know, that that to be clear, that element is it is possible for Godzilla films to examine that. And I think the 2014 Godzilla film did a great job of that. Right. right, that, right. That's what the 2014 Godzilla film is more emulating uh, either the Heisei era or, the you know, or the first Godzilla film. Um, is in its examination of how the impact of these monsters affects the small the lives of small people but um this is not one of those films <laughs> this film is much more uh emblematic of the of the late showa era you know the 1970s godzilla movies with titles like destroy all monsters or <laughs> all monsters all out attack or you know things like that where it's just we're just here to see people get blown up. And yeah, it's like, yeah. Or, I, you know, buildings get blown up and monsters get thrown around. Like. And, and as we already talked about, it did a lot of stuff right. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock, like, it can only, and it, it came in at less than, less than two hours, which, I mean, good for it for getting everything done that it did in that time. So I'm not going to knock it too much for not doing a thorough examination of the loss of life. Hell, maybe they'll even acknowledge that in the next one. Like, uh, like a lot of the MCU movies, you know, still dealing with the bad out, the, some of the fallout from Avengers Age of Ultron. Who knows if this monsterverse keeps going and this and it's successful enough, maybe they'll talk about what happened in Hong Kong and that'll be some kind of, you know, that'll be some kind of impetus for something else that happens. So they still have time to address it. It's just something I was thinking about because the movie's like trying to end in a very positive place. And I'm like, I don't know if I should feel good about things right now or not. But again, so much of the rest of it is well done that I'm not. I'm not going to knock it too much. Uh, right. The characters that we liked survived, which yeah. is, you know, I think what the director and what the, you know, what the, the filmmakers here kind of want you to focus on, uh, you know, the, the Godzilla and Kong both lived, uh, you know, and, the, and, and that's, you know, that's what they're trying to show you. But ultimately, you know, we kind of hinted about this earlier, but it's just like, you, you know, the audience, you have to know what you're getting into with one of these movies. The movie is not, you know, it's not titled the, 
and this is not a dig at you, but it's like the, the movie is not titled like yeah. an analysis of the of the of the deep psychological traumatic impact of Godzilla and Kong fighting each other. It's Godzilla versus Kong, mm-hmm. and it's as open as plain as day in the in the intro sequence where it you know in the intro graphics it shows like Kong and Godzilla like ascending the ranks of like a March Madness bracket to fight each other, which is absolutely ridiculous and i was hilariously you know i was like cracked up about (laughs) but it's i mean that 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 kind of tells you what movie this is supposed to be and you know i don't think i don't think it's necessarily that you're overthinking it you know thinking about the ending because you're right i mean it could come back and be it could very well be an element and to be to be fair i mean that is always the undercurrent right since the first godzilla film or since after godzilla 2014 all these movies have dealt with like well how do humans where do we fit in in the equation? Mm-hmm. Godzilla King of Monsters did not have a satisfactory answer to that. It had no answer. It was pretty dumb. This movie doesn't even try. And you it's better for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't ask why. It doesn't care why. It only cares about the what. And that's, for me, that was fine. Anything else in this movie we didn't touch on that you want to mention? Or we covered it pretty well, you think? We covered it pretty well. I mean, I, I think we touched on, you know, I thought this, the, the, the effects, the CGI was was very impressive uh you know kind of as always and i think the the choice to make it visible and not cover it in unnecessary layers of smoke and smog and rain and particle effects was a good one um i thought the hollow hollow earth design was really fantastic and i think you know something that i think we touched on right at the end of our conversation about king of monsters that i will bring up again is that, you know, in King of Monsters, it was a problem, and this one, they've really situated it, um, is the digital cinematography. Okay. You know, because you you obviously don't have a real camera flying around in midair, you know, as two monsters beat each other up. You have to do that entire scene digitally, and you have to place the camera in that environment as if you were a cinematographer, as if you were, you know, com- compositing and filming those shots. I think where King of Monsters failed, where I think Pacific Rim 2 failed, was having the camera be this disconnected, ethereal thing that just kind of flies around and does whatever it wants. In this movie, uh, I think they kind of nailed down how you have to do it, which is that you have to take the same mechanics as if you were filming a on-Earth hand-to-hand combat scene between two people mm-hmm. and just apply those to big monsters. That's what they did. That's what Adam Wingard did. That's what the cinematographer um, Ben Saracen did. Was he took the he took the dynamics of a of a regular fight scene and applied it to monsters fighting each other. And I think it was it's a simple task, and it it just worked out really well. Yeah. To that point, also, I really like the shot uh, when they're in the hollow core and he's like kind of floating up there with the asteroids or whatever. That felt like something where it just like. It was kind of cool that they took the time to get that kind of really interesting different shot in a movie where obviously a lot of time is spent getting the action right like that. It's like, oh, cool. They did something else that was really cool on top of that. And I, But I also yeah. agree on all the action. I don't I don't know if I remember thinking that at the end of Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim 2 specifically. I actually think I like the first Pacific Rim movie, but I don't think I like the second one. And, well, that's what I'm – I'm sorry. That's yeah. what, to be clear, that's what I'm saying. The first Pacific Rim film I think did a pretty good job because it, it mostly kept the camera on Earth and tried to position it like it was like a human watching the fights. Where Pacific Rim 2 failed is that the camera was just flying all over the place doing nonsense. Probably and helps think, when you have Guillermo del Toro directing versus whoever did Pacific Rim Uprising, I guess. But, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, but no, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad this movie found a way to get that right. And hopefully anyone else that tries to make these kind of movies about massive things going forward looks to this one for uh, guidance. Elijah, before we uh, sign off, I'm not going to make you do like streaming recommendations or anything like that because we're about to film your portion of our top 10 podcast. So people will get plenty of recommendations from you there. But do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, I know I'm pretty pretty damn excited for um for the mortal Kombat movie oh, okay which uh will be coming to hbo max i didn't know that was an hbo max release also yeah it is yeah i mean i'm i'm really looking forward to it. i'm a big fan of the mortal Kombat video games from a, a long time back and of course you know that's my plug for HBO for myself max. from you know warner media on hbo max so gotcha. that'll be streaming then well maybe that'll be one where we'll get you and daniel in the same room because he's obviously a big uh he, he's he's a big martial arts guy uh so uh as usual, I'm Josh Shurnavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is uh, Pod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. Uh, so send any feedback or suggestions there. Coming up next on the podcast, uh, we might have our top 10 episode and then maybe be doing an episode on another uh, – uh, yeah, coming up next on the podcast, you might be, be doing an episode on Shiva Baby, which I'm going to finally make Josh Brown talk about a Jewish movie, I think. Uh, so <laughs> I'm looking, uh, looking forward to that one. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Elijah for joining. We'll see you next time.